Philosophy and science, two of the most prominent fields that we dabble in when it comes to Christian apologetics. However, many perceive that one field is superior to the other, and often it is the field of science that is perceived to be the superior one. Stick around for the rest of the podcast as we converse to see if indeed science is lowered above all other disciplines. Welcome back to SAF Podcast, and if this is your first time tuning in to listen or watch on the podcast, make sure to say subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to the podcast. And also do make sure to share the podcast with whom you think would be a great fit into your audience. And also do leave a review or um, any sort of feedback that will be a great sort of encouragement. And make sure to stay subscribed as we have some amazing content rolling out for you. And today I am joined by Professor Kenneth Samples of RTB. Professor, it's a delight to have you here with us. Welcome to SAF Podcast. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be on with you. Appreciate it. Uh, Professor Kenneth is a philosopher and theologian and is a senior research scholar at our friends at Reasons to Believe and is the author of several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Seven Truths That Changed the World, God Among Sages, and most recently, Christianity Cross-Examined. And uh, I believe, Professor, that the latest book, Christianity Cross-Examined, is a huge hit. I came to know that you were featured twice on the Apologetics 315 podcast. Uh, with my friend Brian Orton. So I believe the book has been uh, a massive hit among the readers. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate Apologetics 315, and I appreciate all of these opportunities uh, and to be on your program. So thank you for having me. All right. So, uh, Professor, we have, as, as you know, the topic that we're going to look at is the, uh, the supposed conflict between the field of philosophy and science. And this is uh, the reason we picked up this topic was this, this is a very relevant point that is brought around, uh, especially among the atheist community in India, and especially in my state, where they want to present science as the discipline that is above all, the discipline that can give us, the only discipline that can give us truth. But you are a philosopher and you deal with, uh, all of your teammates are full-time scientists. So let's get into it. And and first of all, let's try and get our terminologies correct. So uh, what do we mean by philosophy? Is Is it a way of life or is it a way of thinking? Because there are many people who would say, you know, I leave and let go, and that is my philosophy. So what do we mean by the word philosophy? So the word philosophy comes from the Greek, uh, philosophia. So uh, etymologically, it means the love of wisdom. I think it's fair to say that philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom, reason, truth, it, it implies a, a way of life. Uh, I think it also involves a critical analysis of, of something. So a philosopher is critically seeking answers to the big questions of life. I think that's probably the way Plato and Aristotle would have used it. Right. And, uh, but when we look at the term, you know, as philosophy as a discipline, then it would be a bit more nuanced. Uh, and the reason that I'm asking this is that in, in one of the recent conversations, one of my friend, Matt, he was in a group and there were so many atheists sitting around and they were speaking and they, was, they were presenting philosophy as, you know, science is a real work. You know, you, you touch, you, you get in with science, you deal physically with it. But philosophy is simply you leaning back onto your leg chair with your you know, legs crossed and then thinking about some random stuff. You know, that, that's all philosophies. And there is also this notion among, among us lay people that you know, if, I, if I talk with a person, and he says, well, what do we mean by life? And what do we mean by air? And suddenly I never mind, we go, oh, this guy's getting too philosophical. 
And that is how yeah. we tend to use the word philosophy. But as a discipline, it is quite distinct. So what is that distinction that you would draw there? Yeah, very good. So in academic philosophy, we would talk about various branches or fields. Um, philosophy would involve metaphysics, which is the study of reality. Hmm. Connected to that would be the study of ontology, the study of being. A very critical part or branch of philosophy would be epistemology, the study of knowledge. How hmm. do I know? How can I come to know particular things? It would also involve the, the branch of ethics, the study of the good. Uh, we could even extend it to the study of values. Hmm. Um, philosophy also is interested in logic. So logic would be a yeah. component of the philosophical discipline. So what is reasonable? What is rational? How do I make arguments? So uh, certainly philosophy can mean in a, in a practical way, in kind of a um, personal way, it can mean, oh, you know, a person thinking. But I think uh, more deeply, philosophy is the study of the big questions of life. Uh, why, in fact, I think that there's an overlap between things that philosophers are interested in and things scientists are interested in. Right, and the, the gist of what you were saying was that philosophy deals a lot with thinking. And Alvin Pladinger, one of the most renowned Christian philosophers of our time, he said that philosophy is basically thinking really hard. And is that a very good characterization? And if so, then we could look around and say that everyone and every field does engage in philosophy in one way or the other, because as Platinger says, it's thinking really hard. I think so. I, I think everybody at one time or another thinks rigorously about something. I think all people ask questions uh, about the nature of reality, about the nature of truth and goodness. Hmm. And uh, therefore, to some degree, I think everyone is a philosopher. But I also think that philosophy brings a rigorous approach to these particular areas that uh, that many lay people could benefit from. Right. And so once now that we have looked at what philosophy basically is and you know, worked out the definition, let's get into science. And here again, there are different ways that people would use science. People would say, well, what does science say here? And at the same time, we would say, how much, how many marks did you get in science? So we use the term science to mean different things in different contexts. But in an academic sense, when we're looking at the same way that we look at the term philosophy, what is science normally and best described as? Yeah, I think that uh, when we think about science, we are thinking about a, an, an observation of the natural world, hmm. drawing data about uh, the physical world, the physical universe. Uh, other people talk about science in terms of developing a model of explanation about the natural world. Uh, you know, if you go on to uh, some of the more technical areas of science, they will say that uh, scientists engage in developing models about the natural world. So uh, as, as, as you right now mentioned about how science basically works around, there are two domains that sort of interplay and have this interchanging interaction with both philosophy and science. And these are the domains of maths and logic. Yeah. Uh, now, Dr. Alexander Proust, who, who is a phenomenal philosopher with whom I have the privilege to engage in conversation, he has a PhD both in philosophy as, as well as in mathematics. So it seems to me that maths is something that scientists use. And I think we see in, with the examples of philosophers like Dr. Alexander Proust, 
the philosophers also engage with mathematics uh, for example dr craig and graham op they had a, an interaction between the applicability of mathematics mm-hmm. so i think there is a consensus that math is something that both the scientists and the philosophers dabble with but in terms of a, do- a domain that is developed by primarily under whose domain does that fall under the the, yeah, the prospect of developing mathematics mathematical proofs mathematical terminology laws of mathematics and logic is that more leaning towards philosophy or science yeah it's a good question um i would say of course that uh, logic itself has a deep connection to mathematics and logic is one of the basic fields of philosophy hmm. i would i would also note that it's only been about the last couple hundred years that scientists have accepted the idea and utilized the idea that we can use mathematics as a way of explaining the natural world uh, i would say that mathematics is an independent discipline hmm. uh you can be a mathematician and not be a scientist you can be a mathematician and not be a philosopher uh but all intelligent people all rational people when they look to explain something they appeal to these uh this field of uh, abstract entities uh, mathematics logic reason right. uh so I would say that math is its own independent discipline but it's hmm. utilized by both uh, uh scientists as well as philosophers. Right. And then as we look at the field of laws of logic as we have pointed out earlier that definitely straight up comes under the field of philosophy that is where philosophers work around to develop and develop the laws of logic and it's often scientists who would look at the laws of logic for example the law of non-contradiction it's not exactly a scientific a mechanism that has been developed by scientists but it's something that scientists would draw from the field of philosophy and on our instagram page of of savra apologetics uh, we put out a question asking people what they felt is science superior to philosophy is philosophy superior to science and one of the point that was um, put forward was the field of philosophy of science so the person pointed out that you know you can't say science is superior to philosophy because there's a whole field called philosophy of science what is right. the field of philosophy of science and is that sort of like a death blow argument to show that science is not exactly superior and above philosophy. Yeah, very good. Well, philosophy of science is looking at the the scientific discipline and raising all of the questions that then relate in a philosophical sense. So mm-hmm. for for example, to do science, you have to believe that there's a real world out there. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to trust in your cognitive faculties and your sensory organs. You have to believe that, you know, your eyes, ears are are reliable. Uh you accept the idea that there are patterns and regularity. So there are many philosophical implications that go into science. I would say that uh science is the product of both philosophy and theology. Historically, uh in in the 1600s science began in Christian Europe uh with theological implications. There's a right. world out there, it's good. So philosophy of science would be looking at the philosophical elements of uh science, and I don't think you can do science without both philosophical and theological implications yeah why did you mention that we can't do science without theological implications because it may come off to people that it looks like uh, only christians or or theists can do science is that that's that's not what you're saying saying there right 
No, I'm not saying that, but I am saying this historically. Um, you know, if you, if you think about the emergence of science, um, certainly in many of the great civilizations, they made contributions in the ancient world to science, to mathematics, technology. We could talk about Mesopotamia. We could talk about China. We could talk about India. We could talk about Greece and Rome. Uh, we could even talk about Babylon in the um, 800s. So right. all of these, all of these civilizations made contributions to mathematics. I mean, algebra, for example, is an Arabic word. Hmm. So these ancient civilizations make contributions to science, technology, and mathematics. But there's only one place that science had a fundamental beginning, hmm. and that's in the 1600s in Christian Europe. What I would say is I think the worldview in which science emerged and flourished was the Christian worldview. And I think it was helped by the idea that Christians believe that there is a God who is rational, who is reasonable, who, who used laws to create the world. And, and therefore, the early scientists believed that the scientific enterprise was a rational discipline. Right. So, so I do think theology historically has a connection to science <clears throat> and to some degree, even philosophically. Yeah. And the key thing that stands out in that fundamental beginning is the notion that we can understand the outside world, that we could look at planets and we could predict that they have a particular structure or law that they're following, which, you know, which as you pointed out, is a deep philosophical and a theological assumption to make there. Um, now, as we move on, one of the points that really strike out to people, and this is primarily due to the idea of logical positivism, which, you know, which is primarily based around that, you know, if you can do it with your senses, then that's what is believable. And so what, what I've seen logical positivism has do in this dialogue of philosophy of science is that it has highlighted the point that with the field of science, you know, our claims are testable and falsifiable. And they raise the objection. With a philosophical claim, is that equally testable and falsifiable as one would do with a scientific claim? Well, I think that it is. It, hmm. it may come in a different way. I mean, in science, you may you may look at the data empirically and attempt to falsify or, or firm it. Logical test claims uh, or philosophical test claims would come a little differently. Uh, but for example, if a idea is, is illogical, if it is incoherent, it would be by, by its very nature false. Right. So I think that there are ways of testing philosophical claims. Uh, in, in fact, in that context, um, Stanley Yaki, who is a Catholic philosopher and physicist, he argued that science was stillborn in other great civilizations because they had philosophical and theological ideas that undercut science. For example, mm -hmm. in India, you, you have the idea of karma. Yeah. You have the idea of reincarnation. Uh, Yaki would argue that in many ways, you need a, uh, a linear view of history, not a cyclical view of history. Right. And the, the notion of logical positivism that we have you know, touched about, here in, in, among, our, among our people, among our, the, our language people of Carolites, where new atheism is the same sort of Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris level new atheism is very prominent. That is the foremost level of atheism. And here the notion of logical positivism is very vibrant. But you are yeah. a, a proper academician level philosopher, and you've looked at what has happened in the field of philosophy. 
how has the attitude towards logical positivism changed from when it was presented by the Vienna Circle to the way it is right now? Well, that, yeah, that's very good. I, uh, I think logical positivism is uh, logically incoherent. Um, I think the idea that you can, you can only have knowledge through, through empiricism, um, there, you know, that idea doesn't come empirically. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that philosophically, logical positivism has shown itself to be a, a flawed view. But I, I think the new atheists do use it, but kind of in another way. I mean, Richard Dawkins would say, for example, that, uh, you know, scientists get at truth, philosophers just speculate, uh, you know, philosophers don't engage in anything that actually gives real data. But I think that the new atheists, uh, Dawkins, Harris, and others, they don't appreciate that you, you have philosophical components within the scientific enterprise. And, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Lawrence Krauss who says that experiment is the final court of appeals. Well, he never got that idea in an experiment. That's a philosophical assumption that he began yeah. with. Could I note, and I and I don't mean this to be, I don't I don't want to convey the idea that one discipline should, you know, look down on the other discipline. Hmm. But but I will tell you this: I think with the new the new atheists, they um, they have not taken time to think carefully about philosophical implications. Now, I admit I'm not a scientist. I was not trained as a scientist. But um, I do think that people like Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins and others, they often make kind of silly statements. They say philosophy is dead. Well, that's a philosophical statement. Yeah. So, um, you know, it. I don't want competition between scientists hmm. and philosophers. I think we should try to work together and understand each other. But uh, I'd like to encourage uh, atheists to take philosophy more seriously. Yeah. And one of the things that we see, for example, when you mentioned about the falsifiability and, and the ability to test philosophical arguments, I was immediately recollected about when I first learned about the Kalam cosmological argument. And the point that Dr. Craig mentioned was, if, uh, if an argument of that uh, deductive format has to be valid, then the premises right. have to be true and the logic must follow. And if I'm able to show that it is illogical, like for example, there's a non sequitur or a fallacy of equivocation, then I can show that that philosophical claim or argument is false. And that is also a test of its falsifiability, the ability that we can make it false. Exactly. Um, and that's a very powerful uh, means of showing something to be false. So I, I would say that uh, philosophers use logic in many ways that is comparable to the way that scientists use mathematics. But it's still a form of it's a form of reasoning. It's an attempt to try to get at uh, is this is this first reasonable, and then are the premises true? If so, it's sound. Right. And so we've looked at and we've seen that philosophy, philosophical claims and arguments are testable and falsifiable. Now there's another question that that pops up when we get in this dialogue, and it's a very simple one, but I'm going to pitch it to you and see what your response is going to be. It's like I said, it's very simple. It's, it asks basically that you know science is something that we can test right in front of our eyes. Okay, so very, very much deeply entrenched in logical positivism. It says, you know, if you make a scientific claim, a scientific prediction, uh, we test them right in front of our eyes. But you can't do that with philosophy. So then shouldn't science be 
or scientific claims and arguments be better than philosophy now as soon as i say it i can see there's a lot of issues and problems and assumptions there that go around it also reveals a very superficial understanding of how scientific uh, claims and theories actually work but what would your response be to it yeah uh, I, when i often meet scientists i ask them why does science work and very seldom am i ever given an answer they just say well it just works so the idea that science works right in front of your eyes i i think that fails to a, to appreciate a number of things uh, there are a number of areas of science in which uh the natural world seems very uh, mystical almost or uh it it seems mysterious maybe a better word quantum mechanics yeah. That's a that's an area of science that doesn't seem to just work right in front of your eyes. Uh, it's very common today. People speculate about the multiverse, hmm. uh, and they have no observational evidence of the of the multiverse, but they speculate about that. So I'm not sure that uh, I think philosoph- I, I think scientists at times speculate. And, yeah. and they don't recognize that they're speculating. The other point that I would say to that is, remember that to do science, you begin with certain presuppositions. Hmm. You assume that your eyes and your ear sensory organs work properly. You assume that your brain and mind work properly. You assume that nature is ordered and regular. You assume that there's a real world out there. So I I think the idea that science works without philosophical ideas or without a worldview, um, I think people who assume that have not thought carefully about the assumptions Uh, that go into science. Yeah, and one one of the biggest assumptions that you, that you pointed out is us assuming the world to be real and ourselves to be real because there is no other way for us to scientifically test it but we take it as granted. That's a huge assumption to begin with. And philosophy yes. actually comes in and it challenges those assumptions and asks are those reasonable and rational to hold? But science can just take them as granted and move forward. And even when we look at scientific theories like the big bang theory for example, we have redshift velocity of galaxies and the cosmic background wave radiation. there is a lot of uh, philosophical reasoning that goes into it uh, even when we even when we look at speed of light so often said that this, we assume the speed of light to be constant throughout and that's a huge assumption and then we you know step forward and we work around with the empirical data but there's an assumption to begin with so all of these objections towards the supposed superiority of science over philosophy it actually it, it, it ends up laying bare the superficial understanding about how science actually works even if that person doesn't know much about philosophy it shows how little they understand how science works but there is another third objection which is more about it's 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 in a more utilitarian sense and that is that you know, science has made life easier science has contributed great good to our lives and what has philosophy done you know when we contrast it with the real world impact that science brings about uh, it, it it looks like an instance of taking uh, philosophy out of its domain and trying to apply it, trying to see if it would work in somewhere else but as a philosopher what's your response to that yeah well i would first uh, concur i think that uh, i think that the scientific enterprise is one of the great achievements of of human beings uh i think that it does have very practical results especially mm-hmm. when you think about technology and medicine you know our lifespans have i think been increased somewhat because of the development of science Now uh the area where I would differ with that idea is I think ideas rule the world um yeah 
you know, if you look at the 20th century and you look at uh, communism and uh, uh, communism is a philosophical system. It's called dialectical materialism. Uh, the the uh, national socialism, Nazism, has philosophical components. It seems to me that philosophers have very influential uh, have been very influential across the world, and even ideas today like postmodernism. These are philosophical ideas. Uh, so I, I think again to to try to uh, say that science is practical, it's it's helpful, it's usable, but but philosophy is just speculation. I don't think that that shows a recognition not only of the philosophy of science, I don't think it shows a recognition of the philosophy of history, hmm. how ideas have, have come forward. And so, um, again, I think science is dependent upon both philosophy and theology to some extent. And what I mean by that is you have to have a world or a universe or a cosmos that is conducive to science. Right. Not, not every philosophical worldview perspective is conducive to science. You also have to have human beings that can operate in a scientific context. Not every anthropology is that true. Of, and you have to have what we talked about earlier, this congruence, a hmm. connection between the world and the mind of human beings. Right. And one of the, as, as you were pointing out about um, Nazism and Marxism and the communist ideologies and how philosophy plays a role there, one in historical incident that came to my mind was the French Revolution. And we see that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that philosophers actually played a huge role in spurring the people to stand up for these values of liberty and fraternity. And we see how, you know, that is a real world example. And, and there are many people who think that val these moral ethical values uh, sprung into humanity at the French Revolution. And for those people, it becomes really hard to try and negate the effectiveness and the critical role philosophy plays because as, as you mentioned in the beginning, ethics, that is, a, that is a place that has huge ramifications for how we engage with and also how science has to be dealt with. So, uh, yep. I, in, in one of the recent interactions on the mm. late uh, show with Stephen Colbert, um, I forgot the name of the comedian who came on. I think his name is John, but I may be wrong. Uh, John Stewart, yes. He came on yep. and he was, he, was, he was joking about how scientists, if they could split the atom to create mass amount of energy that can be used for civilization and energy that can be used uh, used to create an atom bomb. He said, imagine what the scientists would split first. So he was hitting at the fact that scientists often would go uh, unbridled in what they can explore, but it is a field of ethics that is under the domain of philosophy that would step in and say, well, this, this is dangerous and this is not, this is immoral not to be dealt with. And uh, so it, as I look at all of these objections, one thing that, one thing that I noted was uh, most of these objections against, no, I think, if not all, most of these objections against the usefulness of philosophy also seem to be applicable against other streams of arts, economics, literature, political science. So it looks, it looks as if that we are taking a clock and then criticizing it, calling it inferior because I am unable to weigh my weight with the help of a clock. It looks like we are taking philosophy out of its domain of work, and then placing it alongside the same domain of science and saying, well, science does this. Philosophy doesn't do it, and therefore philosophy is inferior. I think we can apply that to same in literature and say, well, what good has literature really brought about in our world in the same sense when we contrast it with science? Or what good has the field of arts and dance and music brought about in the same real world change that science has brought about? And what would be your response to that sort of 
uh, uh, tampered with weighing of the effectiveness of both philosophy and science, given that we take it out of its dominant context. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's correct. And I think the implication of that, I mean, if we look at the area of beauty, if we look at the other particular areas, we say, well, what kind of practical implication uh, do they have? Well, in terms of people's lives, uh, people find uh, uh, human flourishing in the field of, of art and music. The, these are critical uh, areas that that allow people to have a sense, a deep sense of satisfaction. But I think what that idea reflects when you say, well, you know, science is practical, it's it's workable, it's testable, but all of these other fields, including philosophy, aesthetics, etc., you know, they're less so. I think it fails to appreciate the limitations of science. Yeah. I mean, uh, science has. My father was a combat soldier in the Second World War. Um, the Allies developed atomic weapons. Hmm. Now, science was involved in the development of the atomic weapons, but science can't tell you whether the Allies should have used the yeah. atomic weapons. That is an ethical question. Science can't address the beautiful. It can't address the good. It can't tell you whether all human beings have, uh, have minds. Uh, these these deep questions about the nature of, of reality. So I think to say that philosophy and uh, art and these other areas, aesthetics have limitations, I think I would just turn it around and say, no, science is a remarkable discipline, but it is very narrow. And there are many assumptions that go into it. And so if you're going to critique other disciplines, be aware that, that science has real limitations as well. Yeah. And it's when we look at um, the Nazi concentration camps that we see that Nazi German scientists, you know, they were looking for empirical data to see how long a baby would survive without his mother's nutrition. But you know that you can say that is purely scientific, that is very empirical and, and uh, cheer it on for all the empirical benefits that there is. But there is a deep ethical issue at play here, which the doctor in a scientific role cannot address. And right. it, it's very interesting that you mentioned about the lack that science has. And that's why I want to look at this quote by... Sean Carroll, one of the most celebrated physicists of a time, he says, so he's talking about uh, why is there something rather than nothing and looking at the explanation for the universe. And he says, the other side are those scientists who think that modern physics explains why the universe exists. It doesn't. Why is there even a universe that obeys those laws? This, I argue, is not a question to which science is ever going to provide a snappy and convincing answer. The right answer is that's just the way things are. Now, I think it, it fits right into what you said a couple of times you pointed it out, where science would, you, you ask, why does science work? And often the response is, that's the way it is. And Sean Carroll echoes it, and he goes on to say that uh, the question of why does the universe exist? It's not something that we physicists and scientists can give an answer to. So here, it is, here is one of the most celebrated physicists of our time laying bare an area that, at least one area that has to be considered by the atheist this is an area that science just cannot answer. I think that's right. I, I think that there, uh, I think that thoughtful scientists who appreciate the fields of philosophy and religion recognize the limits of science and recognize that questions about the nature of reality are not scientific in orientation. They are much more in the field of philosophy and religion yeah. and theology. Yeah. 
yeah and as we come to the conclusion of this phenomenal podcast uh, i just want us to look at one particular statement that a cosmologist who is part of a, a very prominent atheistic team here in in india said so he was this was within a, a whatsapp chat and he shared uh, about sir roger penrose work on assimilating consciousness into physics by means of quantum consciousness and he he was writing and towards the end he was very confident that physics will definitely explain consciousness and he went on to conclude that the domain of consciousness the talk of consciousness is no longer the monopoly of philosophy and that it is the final nail in the coffin for the already dead field of philosophy now that's a lot of blunder released in a few words uh, and you are just one of it when stephen hawking said that philosophy is dead but here he went on to say so many things he has so many assumptions about how philosophy really works um in terms of engaging with the idea of consciousness and also the notion that philosophy is dead and this and somehow sir roger penrose work therefore it's a final nail in the coffin what would be your response to it yeah well again i i i think sometimes it's kind of a glaring um un- a lack of awareness of the mm. nature of philosophy and yeah. science itself. I mean Thomas Nagel who is a leading philosopher of mind in the United States New York University uh in one of his books he said that uh you know a naturalist world view a a darwinian perspective understanding reality has totally failed uh, to provide an explanation of consciousness. I mean what is consciousness? Uh I think that that is uh you know certainly there are scientific implications we look at the brain we look at the neurons we yeah. look at how the brain itself works but it also is loaded with philosophical implications mm. uh consciousness means that we are self-conscious it means that we have this aboutness we can think about particular things so I I think to reduce uh consciousness to merely a scientific question is glaringly unaware yeah um and i would say that even secular people who are experts either philosophers of mind or or neuroscientists i think they have come to the conclusion that uh trying to explain consciousness is very very difficult mm. nagel tech takes the point now nagel is an atheist but he says there is no good naturalistic explanation either reductionism or emergent properties nagel takes the point that to have to explain consciousness you must begin with it so he adopts hmm. panpsychism i think that's a concession that uh, consciousness is so difficult to explain it's easier to begin with it now from a theistic point of view if god is an infinite eternal mind it's not hard to think that he might create finite minds that are conscious so i'm not impressed with that statement that yeah. somehow consciousness is the nail in the coffin to get rid of philosophy and also the the hidden assumption is that philosophy is already dead it's done and dusted and now consciousness is going to be explained by philo- by the field of science and physics so therefore philosophy can do absolutely nothing there and as and i believe that as the audience tune into our dialogue that they will come to see that philosophy is not merely thinking about random stuff and making random claims but it is a huge tool that is used and that that overrides often most of the claims that science make as you pointed out the philosophy the field of philosophy of science is a very good example but how philosophy is foundational to how we think why we think the way we think is is our thinking good is it rational is it 
is it well enough to lead us to conclusions and also most importantly is my thinking good enough to make good conclusions from the empirical data before me uh, yeah uh, so i i believe that that actually clears up the air and uh, thank you so much uh, professor kenneth for being here with us it was a true delight uh, for us to have you on saft podcast it was my pleasure thank you for a stimulating conversation that's right and i also believe that the audience will be looking out for our next podcast where we're going to look at another field that is that many hold to be in contrast and uh, in in some sort of a, a conflict with the field of philosophy and all of this is leading up towards uh, a series that we a long series that we want to take in the field of natural theology so we're going to break down the most uh, famous arguments for god and we're going to discuss um, in a casual conversation format on sat podcast me and piyush the duo of sat podcast is going to make a return so uh, keep be on the lookout for it stay subscribed and do share the work and the podcast with your friends who too might en- might encourage uh, might also be interested in this level of conversations and topics and once again thank you for joining us take care god bless and we will catch you in the next one to know more about our ministry visit our website at www.saftapologetics.com you can also find saft apologetics on facebook instagram youtube and patreon